paper in this session. Uh, um, it will be given by Ray Gillespie and Bernadette Cunningham. Ray was uh, until recently taught history in Menu, and Bernadette until recently was librarian here in the academy. And they're going to talk to us about the later history of the library. Thanks very much. Um, we tossed a coin, so you're going to have to listen to me for the entire paper, um, although it was written jointly, and uh, we can argue about the content later. Um, like many m large manuscript codices from late medieval Ireland, the history of the Larbrack is enigmatic, and we've had various interpretations already. This is sometimes the result of the fragmentary state of a surviving manuscript, but that's not really the case with the Larbrack. It has survived relatively intact. Rather, it's puzzling because the scribe didn't tell us who he was. Uh, he didn't obey any of the other rules about composition. He didn't tell us where he wrote it, why he wrote it, or who he wrote it for, even though those kind of guidelines were available to him in the introduction to the Martyrology of Angus and in the introduction to Ashley McConglinna. Um, a patron hoping for some measure of immortality by commission, commissioning a manuscript might have been aggrieved if he wasn't named in the manuscript. And also, if a patron intended the manuscript to be presented to a religious house the lack of his name would frustrate the intention because it would mean that he wouldn't be liturgically remembered. Unlike if you donate a chalice and your inscription is on it and you're there remembered every time Mass is celebrated. The presence of an attribution to a scribe would also help as a guarantee of authenticity and reliability in the same way as a printer's colophon might do in later centuries. And for us as modern historians, that kind of information would, would be crucial in trying to understand a manuscript, its constituent texts, and how they were created, disseminated, and read or used. Yet, the scribe of Larbrack chose to remain anonymous and did not name a patron. Of course, later scholarship can frustrate such attempts at anonymity, and paleographical evidence suggests that the scribe was indeed Murcha Rivaho Kundlish from an East Galway family, and that he worked in several locations, mainly in uh, North Tipperary and adjoining regions between 1408 and 1411. This has allowed us, as you've already heard, to connect him to the learned family of Mach Aegon in North Tipperary, although he had previously served his apprenticeship with the Mach Irvishig School in Sligo and had worked on the Book of Lecan in the 1390s. And more than a decade before writing the Larbrack, he had also worked on sections of what's now the Yellow Book of Lecan, completing that task at Ballymageegan in North Tipperary. He also assisted Mach Irvishig scribes on part 16 of, what, of the Yellow Book of Lecan in collaboration with Mark Irvishig scholars, uh, but again at venues in North Tipperary. 
So we know that O'Quinlish had established connections with two major scribal families with major libraries and manuscript collections. The scribal colophons indicate that the Larbrac was not written as a single project, but rather sporadically over a period of at least four years, from 1408 to 11, and at different places. One explanation is obviously the availability of exemplars, which necessitated travel to different places. If there was a patron, he was a patient man because he had to wait at least four years uh, for the work to be completed. A further explanation for the time taken uh, may have been the supply of the raw materials, expensive materials. At least 71 animal skins were used in this manuscript, and that level of investment became a more viable option if it was spread over four or more years. The scribe's way of working gave rise to a number of distinct sections or booklets that accumulated gradually over time. The earliest of these, as you've heard, is the Martyrology of Angus, transcribed in December 1408 at the respectable rate of a page a day. This text um, looks rather different to the rest of the manuscript. And in particular, we note that half of all the decorated initials in the manuscript are in this one section. A second identifiable section is the biblical tract containing many apocryphal stories, which begin with another new gather and continues to the end of the Passion of Longinus. Whether this was originally one section or a compilation from a number of texts is not clear but it was all transcribed in August and September 1410. A third section, again distinct in the makeup of the text, is the homiletic section, mainly copied in March and April 1411, and then there seems to be a gap before three further homilies are copied in July 1411. At least part of this work was done at Clonmacnoise, and it may be that two visits to Clonmacnoise were necessary to copy all of it. There is no reason to assume, we would argue, that the predominantly religious content of the Larbrac meant that it was commissioned by a religious institution or to be presented to one. There are many examples of religious miscellanies from this era uh, prepared for lay people, either as patrons or scribes, that have texts similar to Larbrac, including the Liber Flavus, Laud 610, Paris Celtic Manuscript 1, and three British Library manuscripts, Edgerton 91, Edgerton 1781, and additional 30512. And as Wesley Follett has argued elsewhere, some of these manuscripts with religious content uh, may have come from the same source as much of the Lower Brack, that is, the Mochagon Library at Ballymacagan. In understanding why and for whom this material was assembled in the Lower Brack, one significant detail is the inclusion of a paragraph, uh, which is a, a later edition, I gather, in the lower margin of page 258, recording the extent of the land of O'Kindlish, uh, the family in East Galway. This would seem to be of little interest to anybody other than the scribe and his family. However, the level of colouring um, in this section is greater than might be expected for a personal book, and the colouring even extends to the marginalia. Although we would argue that the scribe is probably working for himself rather than a patron, 
We know that the scribe of the Larbrack, it was a solitary task, but he was sometimes uh, working alongside a companion. And he mentions one person, Donal, who's addressed in some colophons. And we, have, we speculate that this might possibly be Donal MacAgon, a legal expert of the Ormond branch of the family and the younger brother of Gillen and Eve. Uh, but this is speculation. And my concept is that he, our scribe was at one desk, Donal was working on something completely different at the next desk. At some point after 1411, the scribe gathered together some of his various booklets and perhaps wrote some connecting material but what, what he did then with this compilation is simply not known. There are no datable colophons in the 133 years between 1411 and 1544. So we, if we jump 100 and whatever number, 133 years, we have an annotator, Gilapaldig Machcohur, saying that he was in a Machagon house at Donairy in southeast Galway. Um, translating, I'm in Donairy and I think this is a good book. He also mentions the death of Ulick, first Earl of Clanrickard, as we heard yesterday, allowing us to date the annotation to 1544. Before the 1540s, the manuscript appears to have been effectively out of circulation, to judge by the lack of annotations. It may be that it passed to one of the branches of the MacAgon family, either at Donairy or Ballymacagan, who had presumably provided most of the exemplars. On the basis of analytic entries and of surviving manuscripts, Denari was the smallest and least important of the various MacAgon centres and might be an appropriate repository for a religious work for a family whose main business was law. A second possibility, given the strong religious favour in the selection of texts, is that it passed to a local religious house. Here, a very obvious candidate was Laura in North Tipperary, which had both a Dominican foundation and a house of canons regular. The Larbrack includes a note in the margin of page 260 of the story of the confrontation of James MacCarroll and St. Ruan, founder of the religious community at Laura. It may be that the homiletic material in the manuscript was of interest to the Dominicans there, even though that material, as you will have heard yesterday, was not easily used, uh, being in a complex um, uh, sequence of languages and seemingly emulating older texts rather than being designed to provide homiletic works for immediate contemporary use. The canons regular, with their interest in Irish hagiography and continuities with the pre-12th century reform, are more likely owners, we think especially given the superficial similarities between the canons and the KLJ, whose texts form a considerable part of the Larbrack corpus. Moreover, their Laura House was known as a scholarly centre. The 14th century manuscript Bodley and Rawlinson 468, folios 23 to 75, was written in the Augustinian House at Laura by uh, further prior Gilaroon O'Machon, and in 1477, another prior, Roderick O'Lachnon, copied a collection of 14th century decretals from the reign of Pope Clement V, now Lambeth Palace Library, manuscript 46, for the use of his own brother. In addition, the House of the Canons Regular at Laura also had the Stowe Missal. All of this suggests a community 
who could easily have dealt with the contents of the Lower Brack. There's one other slight indication of an Augustinian connection. On pages 185 and 277, there are notes relating to St. Augustine that are not in the main scribal hand, and these could conceivably have been added in a house of canons regular. So if the manuscript compilation known as the Lower Brack was held in a monastic context in Larha, as opposed to somewhere in Galway in the 15th and early 16th centuries. Uh, the dissolution of the religious houses in the 1540s would have changed its context. The contents of most religious houses were dispersed and moved into safe hands. Uh, and by 1552, the monastic lands at Lorha had come into secular hands, being leased to a former prior. This was a period of upheaval for religious communities, uh, and it coincides with the recommencement of annotations in the Lower Brack. Wherever it had been during the 15th century, by the mid-16th century, it's clear that it was in the hands of the learned family of MacEgon who began to annotate it. On page 190, Flan MacCarbre added a note on the death of the young Tudor King Edward, uh, dated 1554. And we know that in 1575, the manuscript was certainly at Dunairy in East Galway, when another annotator, Cormac McCustomy, added a note saying that he was at that location. Incidentally, a list of castles in County Galway, dated 1574, notes that Dunairy was occupied by Carberry, MacEgan, and Ye Judges, uh, but there was no Clanrickard Castle there. A pattern of association with Denari continued with another scribe uh, attributing a poem to Beucheloch Mor Duna Daira and dated that to, uh, insertion to 1592. The last annotation with the connection to the Mogagons is dated uh, 1601, that's to a William Mogagon, but without mentioning the place of writing. Kathleen Mulcrone believed that the manuscript had probably always been at Denari. Um, Certainly, the name by which the manuscript was known in the 17th century, Lara Duna Daira, described from its having been there for a considerable time. The manuscript was described thus uh, by Michael O'Clary in October 1640, 1629. O'Clary recorded that he had been working at the Franciscan Friary in Kinelehen in East Galway, which is close to Denairi, as you've heard. In the monastery of the Friars in Kinelehen, uh, the poor friar Michael O'Clary wrote this compilation about Kjallach out of the book which is called Dune, the Book of Dun out of the out of the book which is called the Book of Dunaira, third of October sixteen twenty nine. O'Clary refers to his source as the manuscript which is called the Book of Dunaira and Lara Dunwerther Lara Given the limited amount he transcribed from it though, he may not have seen the full manuscript, but simply one of the booklets that made it up. The transfer from Denari to the nearby Franciscan friary at Kinelehen proved not to be just a temporary thing. It appears to, ha to have remained there for a considerable time thereafter. Given the Franciscan interest in, Irish, in the Irish past in the early 17th century, and we know the whole story of the Louvain School and the O'Clary project, it was of some interest uh, for the hagiographical material it contained. It's possible, although again we can't prove it yet, 
that Bernard Ward, who was guardian of Kinalehen in 1629, might have been related to Hugh Ward, mastermind of the um, hagiographical project at Levain. The Franciscans probably came to know about the existence of the Larbrack in East Galway through their contacts with the MacEgan family, and particularly the Franciscan Boethius MacEgan, who later became Bishop of Elphin. Boethius' father was of the branch of the family at Park in North Galway, but would certainly have known about the manuscript. It seems highly likely then that it was through MacEgan contacts that the Franciscans um, got possession of this manuscript and appear to have retained it through most of the 17th century. The Larbrack was consulted in the mid-17th century by genealogist and scribe Dulth of Mokirvishig, as you've just heard, for its genealogies of saints. He did not name it, though, referring to it simply as a Shan Lar, or an old book. Mokirvishig probably travelled from Galway, where he was based, to the Friary at Kinelehen in the Diocese of Clonfert <coughs> to consult it. Um, Kinelehen seems to have been reasonably vibrant by the 1650s, um, uh, Donald Mooney had described it by um, 1615 as having been partly re-roofed and with pleasant gardens and orchards, and it's in a very scenic location um, in East Galway. The book was probably still in Kinelehen towards the end of the century. It's the friary as it looked about 1910. Um, the book was probably still there towards the end of the century when Lector Fahey, whose name appears on page 270, um, seems to have a, some connection with it. He has been tentatively identified as the Irish Franciscan ordained at Prague in 1676, who became guardian of Kinelehen in July 5, 1699, re remaining in office for just over one year till October 1700. That appointment as guardian, however, was made in St. Anthony's in Louvain, and Fahi was still in Louvain in 1700 and beyond. So the association of the manuscript with him probably predates um, 1697. The friars were banished in 1698 from the house of Kinelehen by proclamation, and in the course of 1697, they dispersed their valuables, vestments, altar plate, missiles, and so on, were allocated to local men who could be trusted, and a detailed list was kept. Among the items assigned to one Pierce Aylward was an unspecified book. Now, since missiles and liturgical books are described as such in the surviving list, this book was different. Could it perhaps have been the Lord Brack? We can't prove it. Uh, but Pierce Aylward can be identified with Peter Aylward, whose father, John, had been transplanted to Connacht in the Cromwellian era from their estates at Faithleg in Waterford, where the family had been prominent in Waterford life. Aylward was granted 2,000 acres nominal, but 3,200 acres in reality, to the west and south of Abbey Village in the parish of Balnakill, where the friary of Kinlehen lay. Aylward was a deeply committed Catholic, building a chapel on his lands in 1688, but despite his Catholicism, managed to retain his landholding. He died between 1708 and 1716. Now, if Aylward was holding the manuscript, or, if not him, a neighbour, together with the liturgical items, 
then it probably remained in the immediate locality uh, despite the dispersal of the friars. The manuscript was still in Connacht in the 18th century. Uh, a note in English at page 197, um, which used to be legible um, in full uh, before a reagent was used, recorded there were then 144 leaves in, quote, this big book. Again, doesn't, it isn't given a name. Kathleen Mulcrone tentatively, tentatively identified the initials TG here as um, a Thomas Glynn, or changed her mind in the index, and it's Thomas Gwynn in the index, citing O'Curry's catalogue. But in fact, O'Curry does not hazard a guess at the identity of TG. And as far as we can establish, the, neither the TG nor the date 1708 are legible. I thought we'd have a nice big screen here where you could all have a go, uh, but unfortunately not. But if we take O'Curry's word for it, uh, there was indeed a TG who counted the pages circa 1708. One, we've had great fun looking for everything in East Galway with the initials TG, right? Uh, one candidate is, is Teddy Glynn, a diocesan priest from Dunmore, who had material confiscated from him at the same time as material was confiscated from Kinalehan in the 1730s. Another candidate might, could be Thaddeus Goonham, parish priest of Kiltulla nearby. But the most probable reconstruction is that TG was a Franciscan, reclaiming the manuscript for the community itself in 1708, after it having been allocated elsewhere for a time, um, as the community re-established itself. We know they re-established themselves because a new chalice was made for them in 1711. A list of Franciscans in Ireland circa 1700 suggests two candidates, Thady Gernon or Thadeus Gorman, but no further details are forthcoming, so you can speculate your heart's content on who TG actually was. Uh, little is known about the Friary of Kinelehan in the 18th century, but it's clear the friars did not retain the manuscript, due to the, possibly due to the decline in the community. In 1731, there were just six friars and two lay brothers in the house. And we know that by 1732, the manuscript had passed into the possession of Eamon O'Callig, who lived in South Roscommon and had an interest in collecting medieval and early modern manuscripts. He also owned the Book of Ivana significantly, and he had an early copy, uh, a 1640s copy of Geoffrey Keating's Forest Fassa or Aaron. If O'Kelly had read his Forest Fassa, he'd have noticed perhaps the mention of Laura Brackwick Egon there among the authorities cited by Keating. <laughs> And he may have put with the person that put the two and two together and got 44, uh, making an erroneous connection between the Lar Dunadara and the quite different Mogaigon manuscript that had been seen by Keating. This Edmund O'Kelly died in 1754, and his manuscripts were dispersed almost immediately. Uh, they had been inherited by Lachlan Kelly, his son. Lachlan Kelly of Tunnelig near Ballinasloe. Uh, we know that um, Ivana went to Charles O'Connor in Roscommon. The Book of Dunaira, um, now beginning to be known as Ilara Brack, was taken to County Cork, where it acquired its new name. Um, when the manuscript was borrowed by Dr. John O'Brien, Bishop of Cloyne, shortly after 1754, he knew it as Lara Brack Vigaon. 
precisely how the connection was made between Lachlan Kelly in South Roscommon and the County Cork scholars that acquired the manuscript in the 1750s and from whom the bishop um, borrowed it uh, has not been established. So if anybody knows who went from Roscommon to Cork at that date with, with the manuscript under his arm, we'd love to know. Um, John O'Brien organised the compilation of an Irish dictionary completed in 1762, a very famous work. In the preface to the dictionary, published in Paris in 1768, O'Brien mentioned the Larbrack, describing it as the speckled book of Mochegan, containing a great collection of the lives of saints and historical tracts. The Larbrack was cited occasionally in O'Brien's dictionary. Uh, although Eugene O'Curry observed that, quote, the number of words drawn from it is comparatively small and the illustrative quotations rarely, if ever, correct. It was hard to please O'Curry, I think. Uh, he goes on, so far does O'Brien depart from the original text that I would hesitate to believe this to be the manuscript he refers to if I had not before me the letter of the person who sold it to the Academy. O'Brien had help in making his dictionary in Cork from others with specialist knowledge of the language and access to sources. Two of those involved were Michal MacPathery Longon of the famous Longon family of scribes and a father, Sean O'Connor. The Bishop of Cloyne never owned the Larbrack as such. He just had it on loan from Cornelius O'Daly of Mitchellstown, County Cork as Conor O'Dawley. And it seems that after the bishop's death in 1769, the manuscript was returned to Mitchellstown to the Daly family. By then, the man that had lent it was dead, and it was his son, another Cornelius Daly, or Conor Bono Daly, that uh, acquired it. Uh, several poems are attributed to this Conor Bono Daly, as well as a poem about him, composed by his friend Seamus McCutcher of Rahim. McCutcher was a poet who also produced a manuscript grammar in Irish derived from printed sources that survives here in the Academy in a manuscript copy dated 1763. It's not notable that McCutcher's sources that he cites are exactly the same printed sources as are cited by O'Brien in his dictionary. Now, the Cornelius O'Daly, who inherited the manuscript from his father, knew that the Larbrack was the most important, most valuable manuscript that he owned. While he still owned it, he attempted to copy the first few pages. He also mentioned that his father's annotations could be seen at various places throughout the manuscript. Um, in the late 1780s, however, he was approached by representatives of the newly established Royal Irish Academy, uh, with a view to selling the manuscript. The initiative came about through the Chevalier Thomas O'Gorman, who located the manuscript with the assistance of a Mr. D. Conroy of Kilbritton, County Cork. There may be a connection between this Mr. Conroy and the priest, Sean O'Connor, who had worked with the bishop in a, a generation earlier. Cornelius O'Daly did not know the Chevalier Thomas O'Gorman personally, and Conroy, who was one of the intermediaries, observed that O'Daly was worried that the manuscript he owned might just be copied by the Academy and then returned to him rather than, than being bought 
I was right. Conroy wrote um, to O'Gorman, to tell a secret, he is afraid to send any of them, that's his manuscripts, to Dublin, lest after having been seen, everything useful in them may be transcribed and then the books sent back without being purchased. Uh, so by the time O'Daly got into direct contact with those who wished to purchase it for the academy, he explained that his circumstances had changed over the years. Providence and the unforeseen vicissitudes of life having immediately confined me to such narrow circumstances that I must necessarily part with these, whose transcription might be an honour to me when I'm in my grave. They've been totally mystical to those of our modern age, especially in Munster, uh, and especially that of the Lower Brack. So he wasn't too impressed with his fellow local scholars. But above all, he was concerned with the risk of retaining such manuscripts in private ownership, and he wanted to see it safely preserved into the future, uh, noting it is useless to any other person in our country apart from himself. It appears that um, O'Daly had assembled quite a collection of manuscripts, and he mentioned in another letter, I am possessed with as much transcripts of that language as is sufficient to amuse me for my life. But he was prepared to part with the Larbrack. Uh, he only mentioned two vellum manuscripts, the Larbrack and the then separate Sanus Cormac, which he didn't realise was part of the Larbrack. Neither he nor any of his contemporaries made a connection between those two. When O'Daly dispatched his son to Dublin eventually, heavily laden with the lower back, and it is a hefty manuscript, as you've seen. Um, he only sent the main part of the manuscript, uh, and he indicated that the Academy should name its price. The Academy decided on three guineas, which was not particularly generous. Uh, a book dealer in the same decade was looking for three guineas for a well-penned copy of Keating's Forest Passa. So, to equate that with the value of the Larbrack seems a bit mean, perhaps. The Academy deal was brokered by the Chevalier O'Gorman in association with Charles Valency. It was not O'Gorman's first deal. He had earlier been responsible for uh, sourcing the Book of Ballymote and presenting it to the Academy. And similarly, Charles Valency had helped uh, get the Book of Lekin returned from France and presented to the Royal Irish Academy in 1787. It's possible that the separate section containing Sanus Cormac, Cartham Callig, and a few other fragments were sold by O'Daly to the Chevalier O'Gorman uh, because they did not come to the Academy at that time. These leaves are said to have resurfaced after O'Gorman's death among the Irish manuscripts as assembled by George Smith of Hodges and Smith in the mid-19th century, but that's a simplification. This second portion, comprising nine leaves, was indeed among the large collection of manuscripts purchased by the Academy from Hodges and Smith in 1844, but the Chevalier had died back in 1809, so there's a gap to be accounted for. Eugene O'Curry noted that some later marginal annotations in those uh, separated leaves were in the hand of Peter O'Connell. Now, O'Connell was an Irish scribe from southwest Clare 
who obtained some of the Chevalier O'Gorman's manuscripts. He had been a friend of O'Curry's father, and O'Curry was very familiar with his scribal hand. Peter O'Connell, indeed, was the, work, was the former owner of quite a number of the manuscripts purchased via Hodges and Smith for the Academy, and it seems that the separated leaves from the Lower Brack came from his collection. In advance of the bulk sale of manuscripts to the Academy in the 1840s, George Smith had employed Eugene O'Curry to write catalogue entries for them. When cataloguing item number 224 in that collection, O'Curry described the nine uh, vellum folios, but did not make any connection with the Lower Brack. His realisation that they belonged with a larger codex came later when he could see the two side by side. These leaves remained physically separate until 1972, but they were treated as pages 263 to 80 of the manuscript in the published facsimile. Separately, O'Curry noted in his long catalogue entry for the main part of the Lower Brack that Hodges Smith had another two leaves that belonged to it, and these were acquired by the Academy separate, in a separate transaction in 1845 and are now pages 238A, B, C, and D, containing column killer material. In the decades that followed, the sale of the manuscript from County, uh, coming from County Cork to the Academy, not everybody in Cork was happy about the manuscript going to a Dublin institution. Michal Ogolongon thought the Lower Brack had gone to Trinity College, and he added a note in one of his own manuscripts that it's now in a Colossian Trinoja in Trinity College in the hands of foreigners and heretics. He may have assumed this since a summary list of the contents that he thought were Lower Brack Vic Egon. Um, corresponds actually to the contents of the Book of Ballymote and not the Lower Brack. So there was definite confusion there. But we have to remember that these manuscripts didn't have the kind of fixed names that we now attach to them. Um, the same Olongon also claimed that Sean O'Connor had made a copy of the Lower Brack circa 1760, but again it seems that it was a copy of Ballymote and not the Lower Brack that was available in Cork at that time. In the early 19th century, a Clare scribe, Patrick Lynch, had a variant version of the story, believing that a Lower Brack Begone, so here's your folklore coming into it, had been found near Nina by Michal O'Longon, who gave it to Bishop O'Brien, whose relatives then sold it to the Academy. But all of this is mistaken, but appeared in print in the early 19th century, and if you Google Lower Brack, you'll find that story. The Lower Brack um, the Royal Irish Academy rather continued to search out Irish manuscripts through the 19th century uh, and were still on the lookout for other bits of the Lower Brack. Thus, for example, in December 1848, the Academy contacted the Church of Ireland Bishop of Cashel about two vellum leaves that he had that were speculated to be part of the Lower Brack. The Bishop, Robert Daly, agreed to bring them to Dublin on his next visit where I can find no later mention of these in any academy records, and they were certainly not incorporated into the Lower Brack. We're going to skip forward now to 1972, when the Lower Brack was examined by Roger Powell, the conservator, prior to rebinding. He observed that there was extra damage to these formerly separate leaves 
compared to the rest of the Vanlam manuscripts. Now, we don't know whether that additional um, damage occurred between 1789, when it was sold, um, uh, when they got separated, or whether they'd already been damaged. Um, but it might be that they were already damaged, and that's why they didn't look like they belonged to the rest of the manuscript. Neither Cornelius O'Daly nor Thomas O'Gorman were aware that that last section belonged with the Lower Brack. The intermediary, Mr. Conroy, did mention a glossary, quote, which is quite perfect and also contains a historical tract with marks of antiquity annexed to it, which is a probably uh, a description of the fragment that was later reunited, and if so, confirms that the two parts only got separated in 1789. In 1831, more than 40 years after the Larbrack was acquired by the Academy, um, it was um, bound in calf by George Mullen, who also bound the uh, Book of Lekin and the Annals of the Four Masters uh, around the same time. There is no mention in the correspondence <coughs> with the former owner or in later descriptions of the Lower Brack of the existence of any pre-19th century binding of the manuscript. But yet Mullen, uh, in, in a little, I don't know if you can read it, um, um, note that he has embossed on the front cover uses the term rebound for in his binding note. When compiling a detailed catalogue description of the Lower Brack in 1844, O'Curry noted that the, the arrangement of leaves within this bound version were partly incorrect. He noted, for instance, that the section that Conroe Daly had uh, mentioned as being the first item in the manuscript was no longer at the beginning, which is a clear enough indication that the manuscript was disbound when acquired <coughs> by the Academy. Aside from rebinding the manuscript, the other key initiative embarked on by the Academy was to produce a facsimile in the 1870s. Um, changes in printing technology meant that the publication of manuscript facsimiles was now an economic possibility. In London, the work of the Rolls series and the um, the work of the Public Record Office uh, opened up many manuscripts uh, to um, wider readership, uh, making texts accessible to people who could not travel. In Ireland, this was emulated by the antiquarian societies, and the Academy was expected to do likewise. The scholar Whitley Stokes in India wrote to J.T. Gelbert, the Academy librarian and secretary, in 1869, suggesting that a copy of O'Curry's text of the Lower, or transcript of the Lower Brack might be photographed by the Ordnance Office in Southampton, who were the leading technologists of the time. Uh, and this would mean that foreign scholars, or as, as um, uh, Stoke said, exiles like me would be able to work as well abroad as if we were in Ireland. Um, J.T. Gilbert had uh, spearheaded this initiative with uh, producing an ed edition of the Larna Hera in 1870, and then the same process was used for the Larbrack, uh, employing the scribe, the academy scribe, shows of Olongoin, to produce a special uh, transcript, uh, which was then reproduced lithographically. Uh, the edition published was 200 copies, so it's a a collector's item to the present day. It was J.T. Gilbert uh, 
who ma managed the entire project, which ranged from micromanaging and literally micromanaging the poor scribe, uh, to administering the budget, to dealing with the printer, and to reporting on progress to the Academy Council. The Academy's Manuscripts Committee was confident that rather than attempting to, pr to print a full edition with the translation, which they estimated would cost more than 3,000 euros, which, or pounds rather, which certainly scared the Academy, uh, uh, they concluded by the present system, the Academy perpetuates and places beyond risk the contents of a unique national manuscript. So they were happy with the facsimile as a, an appropriate reproduction. The publication of the lithographic copy was well received, and we'll hear more about it this afternoon, was well received, although William Hennessy and Whitley Stokes were very critical of some aspects. A decade after that, Robert Atkinson produced a version of Passions and Homilies for the Larbrack, making them a bit more accessible, although that has drawn academic criticism ever since. And some short devotional tracts for the Larbrack appeared in religious publication magazines such as the Irish Ecclesiastical Record and the Irish Monthly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Sometime after um, the facsimile, um, was produced, and I haven't found the date for this yet, the Larbrack was bound again, this time in line with a Curry's arrangement of the correct sequence. Um, and a much thinner second part, comprising just a handful of leaves, was bound separately in a matching binding. That remained until 1971, stroke two, when Roger Powell was finished um, rescuing items that had been flooded in Florence and was able to turn his attention to uh, rebinding the lower brack. Uh, that rebinding gave an opportunity to examine the makeup of the manuscript, and the conservator Roger Powell also um, suggested revisions to the catalogue description that Kathleen Mulcrone had produced in the uh, 1940s. As with many other aspects of the Academy catalogue, um, it now requires revision, uh, now, uh, which um, I think after, after this week's um, sessions, uh, we'll probably be able to add further to the revisions that are needed. Uh, but I suspect we're still a long way off an agreed account of the history of this manuscript. So I leave it there. Thank you.